0: we're in the second week of a series called uh, Live Out the Love. And we said last week that the one or the number one um, manifestation that we'll know if we're responding to the fact that we're accepted by Christ, loved by him, that we'll be found to be, and maybe you can fill the word in, we'll be found to be doing what? Can we say it together now? We'll be found to be doing service. Uh, We found last week that Jesus made very clear that greatness is in the capacity and the desire and the willingness to serve. Not in the capacity to get others to serve you, but in your willingness and your capacity to serve others. We heard Jesus teach last week what we just reiterated in his song that. The kingdom of God goes forward only on the basis of my willingness, your willingness to serve. If I'm not willing to serve, if I'm not willing to reach out, if you're not willing to reach out, each and every one of us, then the harvest rots in the field. The harvest meaning there are people that... They want to change their life. They care about the quality of their life being elevated and they are so concerned about the quality of their life. They're ready to come to Jesus, but somebody, somebody has to go and take them from where they're at. That's what harvesting is about. You take crop from where it's at and you bring it to where it needs to be until you and I start reaching out to people, inviting people into our lives, into what Christ is doing in our lives, into church. They don't get harvested. And that's servanthood. So servanthood is this incredibly important thing. But I know that some of you are thinking, but, but you know, this servanthood thing, it just seemed to come so easy to Jesus. It was just who he is. It was, it was no big deal for him. But, but what if there was actually a little bit more to it than that? What, what if there was something more that motivated, that inspired, that empowered Jesus' service and it's something that you and I could actually partake of? More importantly, why is service, let's be honest, or being a servant, why can it be, why does it seem to be so hard, at least sometimes, for you and I? I'm going to give you four quick reasons why I believe it's hard for us to serve. Here's servanthood challenges for them. First of all, some of us have insufficiently resolved pain. I'm talking about soul pain, core pain, life pain. There is pain pain that can be in a human life, that only Christ, until we really come to him in trust, those pains, those kinds of pains can't be resolved. And when you have sufficient pain, you can't think about much else. How many of you have ever had an earache? Now you, get, you get an earache, you're not thinking about doing anything for anybody else. Insufficiently resolved pain, insufficiently resolved struggles. Once again, some of us have so much turmoil, so much struggle within, around us, that can't be resolved except apart from Christ and it may take time that that makes it tough for us to serve or even think about serving anybody and then insufficient resources some of us feel like we don't have enough time we don't have enough energy we don't have enough emotional capacity we don't have we don't have any talents we don't have any ability and so we feel that we have insufficient resources to be servants and then this last one that we're going to really expand on today insufficient vision some of us just can't really see other people's needs very well we 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 can't particularly understand how to serve or where to serve it's kind of like that glass we've all seen that glass where you know if you stand back off it all you can see is yourself it's a mirror and so all you see is yourself. But if you get really close to that glass, you can look through it, and you can see on the other side. There could be a room full of needy people on the other side. But if I'm standing back, all I can see is me. Sometimes all I can see is me, my lifestyle, my convenience, my concerns, and I have to get close. I have to get a different outlook. I have to get a different focus, a different vision before I can even see the other's Sufficiently to start to be a servant. We want to talk about that today. The servant's outlook. There's a a secret, I believe. We're, We're going to attempt to take an inward look at Jesus so that we can understand his outlook. His outlook was very unique, but it's not something that's beyond the understanding or the reach of each and every one of us. So we want to turn to a book in the New Testament called the Book of Philippians. And if you don't mind turning there, it's page 1324. And the book was written to a group of followers of Christ living in a Greek city called Philippi by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul wrote it in about 62 A.D. He had been a follower of Jesus at that point for about 27 years himself. And we're going to look at chapter 2. And we're actually going to start with verse 4 instead of verse 5 and go through 11. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. It says, Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interest." But about what? Interest of others as well. Now, now, he wouldn't have put that there if it came easy to us, if it was natural to us. It's obviously not easy. It's obviously not natural to be concerned for the interest of others. Then in verse 5, it says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. Now, that word attitude, just so you know, in the original Greek word, it's really hard to translate. And, and it's kind of the same frame of mind, and I'm calling it today the same outlook have the same outlook that Jesus Christ had. Verse 6, Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And as a result, God uh, exalted him and gave him a name, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here we have this portion of scripture where it talks about Jesus. Though he's God in flesh, he deliberately sets aside his deity. He didn't appear on the earth in blinding light. He didn't speak in a way that was ear-splitting. He didn't intimidate. He didn't scare people off. He limited the manifestation of his divinity, but he limited it. Now get this, he limited it in a way that would magnify our ability to understand who God really is what God's really like you'll see that as we go on just a bit so we want to try to take a look at Jesus outlook why why was servanthood so easy for him what was it that he was driven by what was it that he saw there's a couple guys there one guy's name is Danny Hillis he's an engineer and inventor And another guy named Stuart Brand who is the president of the Long Now Foundation and they have some concerns they express like this For many reasons, long-range thinking is harder and harder to come by these days. That clock, by the way, take a look at it. It is a clock. I know it's odd-looking. They're building a clock that's going to go for a 10,000-year span. And they're trying to give a symbol to show people we need to stop being so short-sighted and think about what impact our lives have in the long run. They go on to say this. Civilization is revving itself into a pathologically short attention span. The trend might be coming from the acceleration of technology, the short horizon perspective of market-driven economics, the next election perspective of democracies, or the distractions of personal multitasking. All are on the increase. Some sort of balance corrective is needed. So they're concerned that we don't have sufficient long-range vision. And I think if we start to look carefully at why servanthood was so easy seemingly to Jesus, part of it was because of his outlook being of a long-range sort. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Kelly, if I could just turn my volume down a little bit. I'm echoing so much up here I can hardly hear myself. I mean, you know, don't, don't drown me out totally, but just a little bit. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of what? For the sake of joy. Okay, so, so remember this now. Jesus did something for the sake of joy. What did he do? For the sake of the joy that was set. Where was, it, where was this joy? Set before him. He's looking down the road long term for joy that will be coming. Looking at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, what did he do? endured the cross so he endured the cross because he was looking down the corridors of time and he was seeing joy because he knew that you and you and you and me that that some of us would be reconciled to God we would come back to our creator in trust because he was willing to show the real heart of God by going to the cross and setting aside his power and sacrificing himself to show to you and I and every human being since that God, our God, our creator is the safest person in the world. Far from one that we should be intimidated by or run from or be afraid of, we are, he is the one we should run toward and God wanted to show that. And so Jesus endured the cross because he saw that that revelation of God would win us back, many of us back to God in trust. Even though he was disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see that Jesus had this long-sighted reward orientation that made servanthood easier for him. We tend to think it was just spontaneous. Jesus did it because he was Jesus. There's some truth to that. But Jesus, it says right there, was looking at the results, at the reward, at the joy that the cross that he did not like, called a shameful, had to endure. Now, let's just suppose I was an employer and I had a business and and I was offering you a job. And here's the job I'm going to offer you. I'm going to offer you this job where you will handle, you will change and handle soiled diapers eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. All day long, eight hours a day, nonstop, 40 hours a week, soiled diapers. How many of you want that job? Can I see your hands? There is one. You have Soil diaper euphoria, evidently. <laughs> but you do want the job. I'm telling you, you all want the job. You don't, you don't know me, so you don't know what a good employer I am. If you come to work for me changing dirty diapers eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, I'm going to pay you a million dollars a year. How many of you just changed your mind? You want the job. Can I see you? You want the job? Some of you are like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you see? Some of you, at least, would endure the soil diet. He would enjoy. Some, most of us would endure because we're looking at the reward ahead, the joy ahead. Servanthood has to have a long-sighted vision component to it. Jesus had that. Again, in the book of New Testament book of Colossians, Paul, the apostle, once again, writing to followers of Jesus in a city called Colossae, he's writing about Jesus. He says, for God was pleased to have all his, what? Fullness. fullness. Everything there is that can be fathomed about God was manifested in Jesus. It, w- it was put in a form that we could take it in. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. And through him, through the Son, through Jesus, through him to do what? Reconcile all things to himself. Now reconciliation, pause for a minute. You don't need to reconcile someone unless a relationship has been broken or ruptured. The relationship between God and humanity was broken or ruptured in the Garden of Eden when Uh, a very powerful angelic being who himself was in rebellion against God slandered God's character to humanity and the first two humans trusted in the deceiver, the slanderer and thought that God was dishonest and someone to be feared and not trusted so now God has worked to bring us back to a place where we see him For who he is. God is always trying to reveal himself and reveal the truth. The evil one, the the angel that is, uh, you know, not for God, not for us. He's always trying to hide what he does. He's the deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. Anyway, it says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. But how? How's he going to reconcile all things to himself? How's he going to win back the trust of those that can be won? By making peace through the what? blood of his cross the blood is not some magical potion oh i've been washed in the blood Uh, when we the scripture uses that term washed in the blood you know what but it's talking about the blood sacrifice of jesus has so influenced me that i say i am done with sin that's what that means you can't just use these these terms in a cliche fashion without understanding what god's really getting at here it's saying that it's the the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross that's going to reconcile those that can be reconciled back to himself. Through him, whether things on earth or things where? You say, whoa, what's going on in heaven? Well, two-thirds of the angels the scripture teaches just stated loyal to God. But one-third of the angels joined with Satan, with Lucifer, with the deceiver, with the Nicos, and And they they are in opposition to the very last of their breath but two-thirds of the angels stayed loyal but those two-thirds of the angels have been bombarded through the ages by Satan's philosophical lies and evidently they too were kind of you know some of them sitting back saying okay okay we trust you God we're going to stay loyal But he's got a lot of points. Maybe Satan said things like, hey, if God really, really loves us as much as he says he does, why doesn't he give us total autonomy, total freedom? Why doesn't he let us become creators like himself? Why does he withhold power if he really, really loves us? And so God is answering those questions through time by allowing Satan to run roughshod through humanity. Anyway... Jesus knew when he went to that cross, when he gave his life a sacrifice as a servant, he was doing it to reconcile. He knew there was a purpose. He knew there was a mission. Until we have a mission frame of mind, servanthood's going to be a little bit harder for us. Let me share with you one more in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 26. It says, but now he, meaning Jesus, he has appeared... At the fulfillment of the ages, why? Why did he appear? And we're calling, they're calling the fulfillment of the ages, the clock kind of started ticking toward the finalization of things when Jesus arrived and when he finally went to the cross and then rose from the grave. He, to the fulfillment of the ages, but, but why? He has now appeared at the fulfillment of the ages, why? To, you tell me. Abolish what? Abolish sin. How? And for once and for all, how? By sacrifice himself. Now, you got, you got to deconstruct this. How's he going to abolish sin? Is sin abolished right now? No. Sin's still rampant. So, so how, how was Jesus going to abolish sin once and for all by his sacrifice? What has to happen in a human being for sin to be abolished. Well... I have to come to a conviction, a core conviction. I can't do this for you. You can't do this for me. I have to come to a core conviction that Jesus, God, is utterly trustworthy, and it moves me to the place where I cease to trust supremely in myself. I put my trust in Christ. I cease to follow my will and my ways and my ideas and my values and my philosophies, and because I trust Christ, I now follow his will, his ways, his philosophies, his values. And then I come to a secondary conviction. Because God says sin is hurtful, destructive, can't be allowed, ruins the quality of life that he intends to have for the universe ultimately because God says it's destructive even though I may not all the time understand that. I may even be foolish enough to think it's pleasurable and it can be pleasurable for a season. The Bible even acknowledges that. I come to a core conviction And I'm going to tell you something, until you as a human being, until I as a human being come to a core conviction that sin is my enemy, it is not the spice of life, it is not something I can dally with, it is not something I can play with. Until I come to that core conviction, until you come to that core conviction, sin, it won't be abolished in your life or my life, we'll still dabble in it. And he said, but Randy, you don't understand. I I, I hate it. I I don't want sin, but I've got these habits. I understand. It's a process. It's a process. But that sacrifice of Christ was meant to so prove that God is trustworthy, that he is sacrificially loving, that we return to him in trust, follow him fully, freely, and forever, which breaks the power of sin, and it's going to someday abolish sin because it's proven to the universe that this alternative way of living, something alternative to the will of God, only brings destruction and in eternity angels and humans are going to be together as a family as a unit all with that core conviction that anything other than god's will is insanity and we want nothing to do with it jesus sacrificed abolished sin Notice that verse didn't say anything about paying penalties of sin and things like that. No, no, no. It's talking about an impact on us that makes you, me, all of us that are Christ followers say, man, I am done with sin. I don't want to sin. I'm not going to sin because I trust my God. So Jesus was looking forward to the impact, the ongoing impact that his servanthood sacrifice was going to bring. This gives us a key that that Jesus wasn't just spontaneously doing a lot of these things. He was doing these things with great foresight, great calculation, great intention, and he wanted to accomplish things. He saw that he could accomplish things that were bigger than just his time frame that would expand, that would extend all the way down to eternity. You got to hear that last phrase. Jesus knew that what he was doing, his servanthood, was going to impact others in a way that it was going to go right on down through time. It was going to go way beyond just his lifespan on earth. You got to know that. I got to know that. Or you and I won't likely be found serving. That's my conviction. Now, sometimes we get confused. We're like, well, you know, I still want to have some life too. I can't just serve God all the time and serve people all the time. I mean, i got to have a life. C.S. Lewis said something very interesting, great Christian writer. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too what? Because we say, man, i got desires, Randy. I mean, I want to be happy. I want to have some quality of life. C.S. Lewis says, maybe our desires are are, are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite what is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Maybe sometimes we... We have problems in serving and servanthood because we're, we, we still, we're just still trying to get it all. And you can't get it all. And even if you got it all, you don't live long enough to enjoy it all. And so C.S. Lewis is saying God points us to desire ultimate things, eternal things, things that will last, things that won't fade away, rather than be enamored and devote ourselves to things that are temporary at best and sometimes destructive ultimately in this life. So we've analyzed Jesus' outlook a little bit. Now the question is, is how how do I internalize his attitude? How do I get Jesus' outlook as my outlook? Until I get Jesus' outlook as my outlook, I'm probably not going to like or be heavily involved in a life of servanthood. That's just reality. And let me rephrase it. Let's just look at it from another angle. If I'm not heavily involved in a life of servanthood, if I don't go through life with meeting everybody I meet and thinking in this way, how can I bless you? How can I serve you? What can I give to you? How, what can I do for you? If that's not what's normative for us, then we haven't embraced servanthood yet whether we're at our place of business or whether we're in the community or whether we're just interacting with those in our family or our friends. This, this ought to be the way we go through life. Not what can you do for me? How are you gonna serve me? What am I gonna get out of this? But what can I give to you? What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I bless you? So, so this is a, a very uh, vast concept. It's not just serving, as it were, in a position in the church, although it certainly can and should probably include that. But it means... I'm a servant. Because Jesus said servants are those that are great. Babies don't serve their parents. Parents serve babies. Your dog doesn't serve you. You serve your dog. Who's greater? You are the dog. You're greater. And that's why you serve. You can. Who's greater, the baby or the parent? Well, the baby can't do anything. The parent can do lots of things. The greater always serves the lesser. And so God wants to expand our capacity to go through life as servants. But we've got to internalize this outlook on life that Jesus had. Let's go to that book of Hebrews once again. And the first thing we've got to be willing to do, I'm going to tell you, this is not going to be pleasant. For you and I to truly become servants, I have to be willing, you have to be willing to look at my, your, our death. And we don't like death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. And rightly so, 1 Corinthians 15, it says it's an enemy. It's the last enemy. But we have to look at our death. We have to look at square in the eye if we're going to be able to have a servant's heart. So here's what it says in Hebrews 2.14. It's talking about Jesus. Therefore, since these, his children, share in flesh and blood... The physical nature of mankind, he himself in a similar manner also shared in the same physical nature, but without sin. It's just saying Jesus took on our humanity, but he had no sin. It goes on. So that, so he took on our humanity, why? So that through experiencing what? Death. He might make powerless, ineffective, impotent him. Who had the power of death, that is the who? Now, what does it mean it says that the devil had the power of death? Does that mean he can just kill anybody that he wants anytime he wants? No, it does not mean that. It does not mean that at all. The verse is going to explain what it meant about Satan having the power of death as you read on. And that he might, speaking of Jesus, he might free all those who through the haunting fear of what? Were held in what? Slavery throughout their lives. That's the power of death. The power of Death is the haunting fear of death that holds human beings in slavery They don't know we're, we don't know we're slaves. We're held in slavery throughout our life. you say Randy, how, how, how does I'm not afraid of die man I'm, I'm not a, the slave's a bit afraid of death How can how's, How is death holding me as a prisoner as a slave well here's how you see, you and I were made in the image of God, and we were meant to be beings that would live forever with Christ. And there's a drive in us to live and not to die, but we know we are going to die unless we live till Jesus returns. And so what this does is it kicks us into a frame of mind where self-preservation becomes number one drive for every human being that's ever lived on the planet. I know I'm fragile, I know I'm vulnerable, I know I can die, I just don't know when I'm gonna die, so I try to stay alive as long as I can. The fear of death drives me, self-preservation. We'll kill other people to save our own life, self-preservation. Second thing that kicks in, fear of death, haunting fear of death. How does it enslave us? We then say, man, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, so I want to get all the pleasure I can for as long as I can because I don't know when I'm checking out. And so we then move to self-gratification. These become the driving forces in human beings' life. That's what it means by it enslaves us, the fear of death enslaves us. We are driven by self-preservation and self-gratification. The scripture calls this frame of mind darkness. We fumble around in darkness looking for things to give us immediate thrills, fun, pleasure, gratification, trying to stay alive, whatever the cost may be. And some things are worth dying for. Sometimes it's better to die for the right cause than to live on for no cause. So that's what it's talking about. And so Jesus' sacrifice was meant to free us to break the power of this fear of death. How is that supposed to work? Jesus took on humanity. He took on death himself. He went where we're all going to go for the most part. But then he rose from the grave. He exposed the whole storyline. He showed that death does not have the last word. When you and I start seeing life as immortal beings, eternal beings, in other words, if you have put your trust in Christ, he promises you, he promises me, not just forgiveness of sins, but everlasting life like his own. He promises that he will raise you from the dead. Death does not have the last word. The scripture says that the minute that you pass from this life, you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord, you are conscious, you are awake, your spiritual self is with the Lord awaiting your resurrection body. So Jesus' death, he went into death and rose from the grave to show us there is nothing to fear in death, but the impact it's meant to have on us is that we, we stop living for the dot and start living for the line. What are you talking about, Randy? The dot is time. I don't know how much time you have. I don't know. 50 years? 100 years? I don't know. I don't know how much time, but, but it's a dot when you compare it to Eternity eternity is the line that just keeps looping around the room and when we are driven by the fear of death we live for the dot. i got to get it now man i got to get my bucket list fulfilled self-preservation, self-gratification but we are meant to live with an eternal perspective i got all the time in the world I'm eternal, I'm immortal I don't have to get it all now I have time to serve I can live a sacrificial life now because I'm not going to get my deepest desires met in this life anyway. They can't be met, not my deepest desires, because my deepest desires, they're global, they're eternal, they're massive, they're big, they're perfect. So once I embrace Jesus rose and he promises I'm going to raise, I now can, I don't have to live this desperate, desperate life. Get it all now while I can. That's what it's talking about. Until you and I look at our death and we are willing to look at it through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection and his promises of our immortality and resurrection, until you start really believing you're immortal, you won't start living like you're immortal. But when you start living like you're immortal, you'll have a whole lot more capacity and time and desire to serve. That's just reality. One more verse. I've got to be willing not only to look at my death, I've got to be willing to look at my life if I'm going to take this outlook that Jesus had. The Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ in Corinth, he says, so we have no reason to what? Huh? What if I say that to you? Knock it off. You have no reason to despair. You say, you're a nut. You, Randy, do you know what I'm going through right now? It, it, it takes everything I have, Randy, just to, just to stay breathing for 24 hours. My life is so hard. I am in so much pain. There is so much turmoil. There is so much chaos. There is so much uncertainty. My heart is shredded in so many pieces. And you're telling me, don't despair? Is God telling us, don't despair? And some of us are in despair today. Why? Why is God saying this to us? Why, how, can, how can you say that to me, God? How can you tell me don't despair? So we have no reason to despair, but we think we have a lot of reasons, a whole list of reasons. Despite the fact that our outer humanity is falling apart, and just talking about physical aging, And decaying, our inner humanity is breathing in new life every day. Our spirit, our soul, it's growing, it's getting strong, it's immortal, it's eternal. It's full of life, even though our bodies are decaying. He goes on. You see, the short-lived what? Pains of what? This life. That takes in everything. You see, no matter how much pain you have, no matter how much pain I have, it's going to be short-lived. You want to know why? When you're in pain, it doesn't feel short. It feels like time stands still, right? You feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can make it another minute. But all of your pain, all of my pain, is going to be short lived because you're short lived and I'm short lived. Our journey on this planet's not going to be long. Some of you know already it goes so much faster. Young people, listen, I'll tell you a secret. Your life is going to whisk by you way way faster than you think ace you're gonna look in the mirror one day you're gonna see this man (laughs) now inside you're still gonna be ace the young dude i look in the mirror man i still see randy of southeast little randy dandy of southeast little young teenage whippersnapper and i say who are you old man because (laughs) i'm drifting you see The short-lived pains of this life are creating for us an eternal glory, eternal, eternal, look down the road, long range, eternal glory that does not compare to anything we know here. It's saying, you know, you think about the best experience that you could conceive of here and what's awaiting in eternity. It's never going to be lost. It's never going to end. It's so much better that. The finite language can't even touch it, is what that verse is saying. So we do not set our sight on the things we can what? See. We don't don't focus on that. Remember, this is about focus. Servants have to have the right focus. focus. We don't focus on the things we can see with our eyes. All of that is fleeting. It will eventually fade away. Instead, we focus on the things we what? Cannot see why, which live on and on or are eternal. Until you and I really start living in light of eternity. Really believe it. You got to believe this to your core. Servanthood's not going to make much sense. It's going to be a little bit frustrating. You're going to get irritated hearing about it because you're not going to have much soul capacity for it but once you know you're immortal you're eternal once you know that you have the capacity god-given capacity to make impact on another human being that will flow right on into eternity that it's more valuable than anything else you will find time you will take risk you will take journeys and experiments to learn just how much serving capacity and ability and opportunity you really have and you won't dread it man the thing you'll find along the way is this is, who, <laughs> this is who I was always meant to be. I find myself when I join side with Jesus and become a servant. I don't lose myself. I find myself. I want to close with something that I came across that's really interesting. Um, it's an app, and uh, it's called Be My Eyes. Bringing sight to the blind and low-vision people. And the way this thing works is that this is given to low-vision people or blind people. And um, they get this app for free, if I understand it correctly. And so, like, let's say I'm a blind person and I want to catch a bus. Well, I turn on the photo part, uh, the camera part uh, of my phone. And I walk, and somebody's on the other side that's sighted, and they're saying, oh, no, no, stop. You, you've got a traffic light there. Okay, wait. Now you want to make a left-hand turn. You've got to cross the street, and your bus will be right there. And then they, they hold it up. Oh, no, that's not the right bus. You wanted to go to E Street. That one's not going to E Street. And you live your life. This is really cool. You live your life through the eyes of another. You have to have complete trust in them. But get this, if I'm blind or if I have severe vision problems, aren't I better off trusting the vision of someone else who has good vision? But that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to trust somebody else with your life. It's hard to trust somebody else with the quality of your life, the happiness of your life. And yet that's exactly what servants do. You won't become a servant. I won't become a servant until I'm willing to let Jesus guide me through life and see life through his eyes. I've got, to, I've got to believe the way he believes. I've got to feel the way he feels. I've got to see things and people and situations the way he does. And I'm going to lose a lot of control of my life because I'm going to trust him, that he knows what's best, wants what's best. And when he calls me to serve, and he's calling you to serve, make no mistake, he's calling every one of you to serve. You were born to serve. You were born to be a servant. You're made in the image of God. He's the greatest servant in the universe. But you've got to be willing to take courage. Just like the song says, the harvest is ripe. There's lots of people needing to be served. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the laborers are few. Change that. Change that. You know who you are. You know what your life's like. Embrace Jesus' vision. Let him become your lens. Let him become your eyes. Let him become your sight. Here's what I promise you. Everybody's life's going to end sooner or later. You don't want to end your life being a self-absorbed, selfish, consumeristic, 21st century brat. You don't. You just don't want that. Trust me. You want to end your life with a heart so big that God's love is expanded and a life that's full of legacy of servanthood. You want that. You'll really, really want that at life's end. Trust me on that one. It's got to start now. It's got to start with a simple decision. I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to follow him fully, freely, and forever. And I am going to serve. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, all power is yours on heaven and earth. It's your whisper. It's your whisper that can transform our hearts and the trajectory of our lives. May we hear your whisper personally to each of ourselves today. It's in Christ's name I ask it. Amen.